Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I would like to open the service with a passage out of Revelation chapter 9, 19, I'm sorry. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. We just got done singing, Wake the song of Jubilee, let it echo o'er the sea. Now has come the promised hour, Jesus reigns with sovereign power. O ye nations, join and sing. Christ is Lord and kings of kings. King of kings. All right. That's his name. Is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Turn to John chapter 17 this morning for an introduction to this sermon. Brother Leroy read this passage to us on Wednesday evening as a devotional, and I was just struck by that and how that it applies to us today. In our Lord's Prayer, his high priestly prayer, and specifically in the section where he prays for his disciples, Jesus prays not that they would be taken out of the world, but that God would keep them from the evil in it. John chapter 17, verse 13. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. See, Jesus' disciples were misfits, just as Jesus himself was. And Jesus' followers today are misfits, just as Jesus and his disciples were misfits in the culture and the world around them. And I think that Jesus' concern for his disciples continues even to these some 2,000 years later. God does not intend for the church to be disengaged from the world, sequestered out in some cloister somewhere. While that may seem like a perfectly reasonable response, when we see the wickedness of the world, that we would try to get away from it, that is not God's will for us. God does not intend for the church to be disengaged. But rather, he tells us, to go and engage the world and to preach the truth and to be a witness of His transforming power in our lives and to testify of His love 
to the world around us. See, in the parable of the tares, the tares and the wheat are in the field together. In the parable of the net, the good fish and the bad fish are in the sea together. Paul writes that if we were to not associate with immoral people at all, then we'd have to go out of the world. And so there exists this difference between the church and the world. For the church, for God's people to be a light, it has to be there. It can't be a light if it's not shining light onto something. And of course, it's shining light onto the dark world. Salt. If it's not salty, if it's not salting the meat or the vegetables or whatever that the salt is put on, then it's not doing any good. If the salt loses its saltness, then it's just to be cast out and trodden underfoot. So God's people are to be a salt and a light and a city set on a hill. So it's this idea that while the people of God are in the world, they are, by God's grace and Jesus' prayer, is that they would be kept from the evil. And I think that becomes quite pertinent to us today yet. So as Jesus prayed that his disciples would be sanctified by the truth, so I believe that the church needs to be sanctified by the truth. God's word is truth. And that's my desire this morning, is that we together could be sanctified by the truth as we think of how that we should relate to the world. In this miry maze that is the world, God's word is light. God's word is our roadmap. God's word is our compass. And because the world is such a treacherous place, we'd better have our eyes open. Jesus taught that we should be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves as we are in the world. Now remember, we are in the world, but not of the world, even as Jesus was not of the world. In the past few sermons, I've tried to address some of the issues that God's people are confronted with today, and you graciously listened to sermons on topics such as racism and feminism and environmentalism. And I have another ism that I want to talk about this morning, and that's uh, patriotism. Now, this was kind of a um, request by someone, and Earl Peachy a month or so ago preached to us a, a, a sermon that's probably closely connected, but for some reason I couldn't quite let this go. So I want to I want to preach a sermon about patriotism, and I suppose it's especially pertinent to us today because of the election being just uh, I don't know two weeks, three weeks away. So what's patriotism? Patriotism is um, love or devotion for one's country. Nationalism, of course, is loyalty or devotion to one's nation. It's the same thing. But as you think about the world today and you, you think about what 
might be patriotic. Did you know that there's there's vastly different ideas of what people think is patriotic? So I'm I'm sure you're aware of the fact that we have in in the political sense we have conservatives and we have liberals. We have what they call the uh, right wing and the left wing and so on. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to tell you what to think about those things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, though. Just a little bit, just so we know what we're talking about. The left promotes the idea that it's a government's responsibility to provide lots of social services for the people in the nation. And this costs a lot of money. So the left promotes patriotism as paying taxes and doing your part so that there's no needs, so there's no inequality. Your patriotic duty is to pay taxes so that the government can do these things. Equal justice, equal opportunities are our big ideas with the left. It seems the left is rather ashamed to be thought of as American. It seems a little incongruent to me, but sort of how it is. It, It promotes easing immigration laws, and it's rather apologetic for the things that happened in American history, slavery being the big thing. And the far left is usually anti-war. Now, there's some things that Christians can identify with, with some of those sentiments. Uh, as God's people, we don't endorse warfare, warfare. We don't like to see injustice. We think that You know, people should have a good chance on life, and if they don't, then we should help them out, and so on. We would, together with the left, condemn slavery. And so there's some things possibly that we would have in connection with them. The right usually promotes the idea that government should basically stay out of the way so that the individual can thrive. It believes in hard work and being an entrepreneur and getting out there and applying yourself and exercising your rights and exercising your liberties. It believes in a strong national defense. So to the right, patriotism often includes a strong support of warfare. It promotes a strong national identity. I'm not suggesting that you have your head in a barrel somewhere, and if you don't, I'm sure you've seen this slogan about make America great again, right? That's a right-wing sentiment. So here's the question. To which of these competing visions do God's people subscribe to? Well, unfortunately, it's both. To some Christians, the idea of everybody being taken care of and that nobody is pushed aside are quite appealing. To some Christians, the idea of being rewarded for hard work and national prosperity really rings true. Did you know that in this next election, there's many people who attach Mennonite to the name of the church that they go to will be voting Democratic. They'll be voting for the left wing. Did you know that in this next election, there's going to be many conservative Anabaptists are going to be voting Republican? So here's the question. To which of these competing visions 
Should we actually? What does God want of his people? Which of these competing visions should be the vision of the people of God? Which of these visions do the people of God subscribe to, left or right? Or perhaps we may think that the best place to be is in the middle somewhere, right? Isn't that a cozy place, kind of in the mushy middle? And you can see the pros and cons of both sides. Well, with this issue and and with the other issues that we looked at before, I'd like you I'd like to remind you of Romans twelve, one and two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And here's the, here's the thing. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think I had told you that the idea here is, is that we do not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. Don't be like a, a passive lump of clay that when you squeeze, It leaves the imprint of your hand on it. Don't be like a lump of clay on a potter's wheel that the potter can just mold and shape into whatever he wants to make of it. Now there's an an analogy there that we are supposed to allow God to mold us and shape us. But not the world, right? So don't allow the world to put you into its mold. A lump of clay doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have an opinion of what it should or shouldn't, of what it should or shouldn't be. It allows itself to be shaped into whatever the outside forces want it to be. But what Paul's burden is, is that we aren't like that. Resist that. Don't allow the world to shape you. Don't allow the world to put you into its mold. Now, I don't recall that in these sermons I'd ever defined the term world as it's used here in this context. Be not conformed to this world. Now, this is not the same term, although it's the English, same English word that we have in John 3.16 where it says that God so loved the world. All right, that is referring to the creation, and in, in that verse, it's referring to specifically the, the people in it, that God so loved the world, the people in the world. But that's not what this term here is. The term there is has to do with cosmos. You know what that is. It's the created world. This is another term. I don't know how to say it, but it's a it could be translated present age. Don't be conformed to the present age. Don't be configured to this age. And it's talking about what people believe. And it's talking about uh, people's values contemporarily. Like what they believe now. It's the spirit of the age. You probably have heard the term zeitgeist. It's a word that's used in the English language, to describe the the kind of the surrounding feeling, the, the, the feeling of the culture. It's the zeitgeist. It, it's a German word that means time spirit, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the time. So don't be conformed 
to that. It says rather we should be transformed by having a renewed mind. Now there's something here that's kind of fascinating. For us as Anabaptists, we believe that our, our, that life is practical and, and we should. It is. And that our Christianity has to be practiced. And it does and it must. But this verse, this passage, has a lot to do with what happens in your mind. Alright? Don't be conformed to the zeitgeist, but be transformed by a renewed mind. Alright? It's a spirit. I mean, it's a mind that's controlled by the Spirit of God. It's a mind that's interested in discovering the will of God. This new mind that is in the believer is interested in discovering the will of God. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right, so bring that into this discussion of politics. Now, the world is going to tell you to get involved politically. It wants you to get on one side or the other. The specific issues that I have in mind this morning are holding office and voting. And voting is, of course, the more pertinent one today. The specific question, then, is what is God's will for us in regards to this? And let me be clear that it's not the mushy middle. It's not halfway between right and left. The will of God is entirely outside of anything that the world proposes. It's completely outside of anything that the world proposes. It is not right. It is not left. It is not middle, centrist. It is different than anything that the world will offer you as far as how we think about these things. So let's let's think about this. How should we relate to politics, to voting and holding office as we are informed by scriptures? Now, as I go through this, you're going to notice that there, I, I don't have any passages where it says that, where, where Jesus says, as my disciples, I do not want you to vote or hold office or anything like that. All right. So this actually has been a contentious issue and remains a contentious issue to the current day for the Anabaptist people. Now, there has been, for the most part, a unanimous agreement that a Christian cannot partake in warfare in Anabaptism. That is... I think all the early Anabaptists, except for um, Hubmeyer, um, taught very clearly that a Christian cannot carry arms. But there was a, a lot more of discussion, a lot more variation on holding office and on participation in a political sense. So I don't think there's any thus saith the Lord's here that we can actually turn to and, and look. But I want to give you some principles and some, some things to think about as we relate to this. And what I, want, what I want to suggest to you is that the will of God 
That's what we want. That we want to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is not something that the world has to offer. It is different than that. So first, I want to think about Jesus' example and teaching. Turn to John chapter 6. This is the story of where Jesus fed the 5,000. And people are always attracted to free stuff. Did you know that? And here was free food. And people were amazed by this. And it says, verse 14 and 15, Then those men when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Well, there's kind of some practical questions here about this. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what kind of king would... What kind of king this would be that have to, would have to be coerced to be made a king? Like, that seems strange. I thought kings are the ones who, who exercise dominion and exercise power. And so a king who is forcibly crowned actually isn't very much of a king, is he? Well, that, that's the one problem with this scenario. But the other problem is, is that these, these people, they wanted free bread. When they saw the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that you come to the world. There, there was something, I think, here that was, that was of an honest and a good heart. But they wanted to make him king. And I suppose that we just about can't get past the idea that they wanted him to be king because he could give them what they wanted free. Like He could just make 5,000. He could feed 5,000 people from... Five loaves and two fishes. But he refused this kingship. So that's the first thing I want you to think about, is that Jesus' example is of refusing this kingship. And then when we think of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, now there was an opportunity, if he ever had one, even if this wasn't opportunity enough, that... He could now be king. The people were ready to make him king. And not just because of the bread that he could give them, because of the food that he could give them, but they, they were actually wanting to make him a, a rightful king. But he didn't seek that earthly power. When he rode into Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey, of all things. And it speaks of his lowliness. Zechariah 9 tells us about that. In prophecy, in a prophetic way, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Jesus' example, and this is what I want us to think about. 
Jesus' example was to change the world by sacrifice rather than by political power. But the question, I suppose, could be asked, was he not politically involved? And and I suppose you could say that he was in a certain sense. He engaged the Pharisees. He engaged the ones that were the, the rulers and so on. And he engaged the Sanhedrin, which was the council. And he spoke truth to power, that's for sure. Um, he, he certainly spoke truth to Pilate. But the difference is, is that he never sought to influence earthly power to perform his will. He never sought earthly power to perform his will. All right? Worldly power and Jesus' power stand in stark contrast. Turn to John chapter 18. I can think of no place in Scripture where these two kinds of power are more clearly contrasted than in this passage where Jesus is standing before Pilate. Now, the, the, you and instruction class have, the, um, have had the benefit of thinking about some of these things this morning, where um, we talked about how that our citizenship is in heaven. And Leroy taught you about two kingdoms and how that Jesus refused to use an earthly kind of power, but that he was a king, but it was a spiritual kingdom. It was another kind of a kingdom. John 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus says unto him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now turn over to chapter 19, and a few verses there, starting in verse 9. And this is Pilate, went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have no, that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have had no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. Contrast the political power of Pilate to the sacrificial power of Jesus. Whose name is blessed today by millions? By whose name do we find salvation? Whose name is associated with weakness and coward, cowardliness? Those questions answer themselves. Which one of these two men had the greater power? Was it political or was it sacrificial? 
the natural human way is Pilate's way. But if you really want to make a difference in the world, follow Jesus' example. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us therefore, let us therefore go with him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach speaks of bearing the cross, of sacrificing. Jesus calls us to change the world by those same means. For we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. The songwriter asks the question, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. Jesus said that if we're not willing to bear his cross, then we cannot be his disciple. So if we are not willing to go and engage the world, however and in whatever means you can, or I should say in whatever arena and area that you can, by a means of sacrifice, by a means of the cross, if you're not willing to do what it takes to follow him, then you're not willing, you're not able to be his disciple. The political sense is the cheap way out. If you really want to make a difference in the world, follow Jesus' example. The second thing that I would like to, for you to think about in regards to this is to recognize God's sovereignty. I came across a verse that had never gotten my attention before. I don't know why not, and it, it should have. You know, you know how those things go. Turn to Psalm 76. I, I, I'm really curious if this verse has ever caught your attention. And I'm thinking about the sovereignty of God. Just the first half of this verse, Psalm 76, verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Now we're pretty familiar with the idea that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And we can understand that. We know that nothing good comes from anger. All right. But here, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. So what does that mean? How does the wrath of God, I'm sorry, how does the wrath of man praise God? Well, I don't know if I can explain it, but I can point out a couple of examples to you where this has happened. And the first is that beautiful story of Joseph being taken to Egypt and he was down there and he Uh, carried, I suppose, or he somehow administrated the land of Egypt through that years of prosperity so that they could um, have enough to eat when they were in the years of poverty and adversity. And Joseph's brothers came down from the land of Canaan. And you know that story. But this is, this is what I want you to think about is that God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save your lives 
by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Somehow, God had this all in control. Joseph's brother's rashness served God's purposes. The wrath of man praised God. Then we have two accounts in that we recently uh, studied in Sunday school in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 4. The, the first in, in Daniel chapter 2 is that, is that story of Nebuchadnezzar's vision where he saw this big statue that had a head of gold and its shoulders and arms were of silver and its chest and its abdomen were of brass and its legs were of iron. And Daniel described that vision to Nebuchadnezzar as meaning that these were going to be four kingdoms. And somehow, all of that came true. The Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, all of this world history from the time of Daniel until the time of after Christ. That whole scope is described here in this dream. And it's a story of of wars and of conquests and of evil men. But somehow God knew what he was about and these empires did his will. You see, the wrath of man praised God because it came out if you want to say it that way, at the end of the day, it was all the way that God had planned it. The other story in Daniel chapter 4 has to do with Nebuchadnezzar more personally. That was this, That's the story where he dreamed this dream of this tree. And this was quite the tree. This was an amazing tree. It reached its branches, reached as far as, from, as, far as I could see from horizon to horizon. That's how big this tree was. And it sustained all the animals and it sustained the birds that were there. And there was a messenger. There was a watcher and a holy one, it says, that commanded that this tree be cut down and that there would be an iron band around its roots, around its stump, I should say. And you know the story about how that came to pass with Nebuchadnezzar, how that he lost his sanity. And did you ever, did you ever think about what you would do if you would be one of the king's prime ministers or the king's in the king's cabinets and all of a sudden the king that you were serving under would insist on crawling around and eating grass. Well, certainly you would just want to get rid of him as fast as you could. Like this, this guy's crazy. And, and so he was. But it was to teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson I was going to turn to that. Daniel chapter 4. Because i got to read a passage there. And this is, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement after the end of all of that. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now here was the proud King Nebuchadnezzar that had learned a lesson about the sovereignty of God. The king's king, the president's president, the emperor's emperor, the dictator's dictator, the king of kings and lord of lords, at the end of the day, is God. When all the wars are fought, and all the treaties signed, and after the empires have risen and fallen, then God will still be God. And somehow, through all the things that happen in the course of history, God will have accomplished his will. The wrath of man praises God. You figure that out and come and instruct me because I can't figure that out. But when we see that, then we find a place where we can trust God for the outcome for something as simple as a national election. God rules over the kings of the world and he sets up and he takes down these men and women at his pleasure. So the first is the example and teaching of Jesus. The second is to recognize God's sovereignty. And the third point that I would like for you to think about, this this has to do with, with dualism, and this um, isn't complicated. I, I know that a lot of you were were kind of complaining uh, whenever it was about Chester Weaver's stuff was just kind of high over your head, all right? But let me just kind of distill that idea and say that you cannot separate the things that you believe from the way you live your life, all right? To separate those two is what Chester Weaver was identifying as dualism, all right? But... That's not how it's supposed to be. We are supposed to have a single focus. We are supposed to have a single eye. We are supposed to have a cohesive. And in fact, everyone does. Some people profess to believe one thing and their lives say something else. But you know what they actually believe. And what they actually believe is what comes out of their lives. So every person does have, at the end of the day, only one intention but they profess differently. But the single eye, the, the, the profession and the walk of life being one is what we're after here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth in his secret place, neither under a bushel but on a candlestick, that they, may, that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. And when thine eye is evil, Thy body is also full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Do you see the cohesiveness between what's in your mind and what's coming out of your life? Some of you may have heard the name... Tony Campolo, he's kind of an icon of liberal Christianity. He said this, now listen to this, kind of an earthy statement here, so bear with it. Mixing our faith with a political party 
is sort of like mixing ice cream with cow manure. It doesn't mess up the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. I think you can figure that out. There are many Christians who will agree with that, and we might too at first glance. But what he and what most of Christianity with him wants to do is to have this cow manure and this ice cream in the same container and somehow not mix it. Many professing faith will subscribe to a political party and try to just not subscribe to everything that these parties adhere to and promote and still maintain their faith. But I propose to you that when both are in the same container, the ice cream will be spoiled, even if you try to keep them separate. The children of God should have only ice cream in your containers, right? You have a single eye. And the fourth is the idea of non-resistance. We're familiar with that. And how that in back of every law stands the power of the sword. The early Anabaptists had a clear understanding of this. The likelihood that their involvement in government would involve them in arresting or judging a fellow, fellow Anabaptist was really high. And that realization should be running in our spiritual veins. It's part of your spiritual heritage. It's part of our spiritual DNA, if you please. Let me give you a recent example. <clears throat> Many of you know that my uncle Davy Fisher was charged with failing to re- excuse me was charged to, was charged with failing to report an instance of abuse while he was bishop at Shavers Creek. The this charge of failure to report was eventually dropped, but he was eventually charged otherwise, and so on. I'm not here to discuss the merits of the charges in the court case and things like that. But one of the things that was striking about this story was that the officer that wrote the charges against him was a Sunday school teacher. Think about that. So here we have a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church ordering the arrest of a Mennonite pastor, both claiming Jesus as their Savior. If that was in fact the case, that makes them brothers in the Lord. Something seems a little strange to me. And 1 Corinthians 6 has a lot to say about that. I'd, I'd like to read just a few verses out of that passage. So here we have a policeman who is charging before an ungodly judge, one of God's people. Verse 6, but brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that's your brother. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, and so on. Fornicators and so on uh, are going to uh, not inherit the kingdom of God. But the point here is, 
that there is a brother taking to law a brother. And it's condemned very clearly and very soundly by 1 Corinthians, by what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what so much of Christianity doesn't understand. We would agree with them that government is legitimate. It is ordained by God. It is charged by God to carry the sword. And in the modern day, a pistol or whatever he wants to carry, whatever the sword describes. But what many Christians don't understand is that while God expects and God ordains rulers and magistrates to administrate justice, these responsibilities are the state's and not the responsibility of the people of God. And there is none of us who will be able to stand in the judgment and say it was my duty because every one of us is judged as an individual. Being judged as an individual is the basis on which you cannot use the excuse, if you please, that it was my duty to administrate justice. Alright? The thing here is, is that you don't put yourself in that position where you have to administrate justice. The people of God are part of another kingdom that runs by a different set of rules. And God actually does tell different people to do different things. Does that make him unjust? Absolutely not. Let God be true and every man a liar. The kingdom of God is a peaceable kingdom, and those who would be part of that kingdom must live by its principles. We have that beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 2 that tells us about when the swords will be beat into plowshares. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in those days And let me, before I read this, tell you something about this passage. Don't think of this passage as being sometime in some kind of millennium. I don't think that that's what this is talking about. I think this is talking about the age of the church. And this is the church's responsibility to conduct themselves in this way. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye. And let us walk in the light of the Lord. I just love that invitation. To just lay down these earthly and material things. And the church is invited to walk in God's light. So. You've ever, you've, you've probably heard the term when it comes to voting that I'm just going to hold my nose and cast my vote. Or the idea is I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. 
Are those things the only options we have? Here's where it gets practical, and this is how I would like to put it together. And this is the, this is the argument that we should vote. God expects us to live our faith, right? We can identify with that. See, God tells us to ask for our daily bread. But he also says that if one doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So it seems like what you're praying for is what you're actually working toward, right? Doesn't it follow then that when we are to pray, that God's will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven? And that when we are told to pray, that we could continue to lead a quiet and peaceable life? That we should vote for the candidate we think is most likely to fulfill God's will or to allow us to live as we believe God wants us to? I think that's an actually a rather narrow way of thinking about this. I think the better way of thinking about this is to live out our faith to practice these principles that we have considered, that of following Jesus' teaching and example, that of non-resistance, that of recognizing the sovereignty of God. What was the other one? I have to look. Oh, and not to be dualistic about it. I think that that's the better way of thinking about it, that if you want to actually live out your faith, then you live out those principles. I think that for the people of God, the political process will be seen, will be seen as being at cross purposes with different motives and different ways of accomplishing than the way that God wants us to live. See, to vote is to engage in the process of the kingdoms of this world. To vote is to endorse a candidate for better or for worse. It is not only a vote against, it is also a vote for. You can't get away from that. I think I told you that I don't have a scripture that expressly forbids civil and political involvement. But I think that as we take these principles and apply them to the issue, it seems pretty clear to me that the follower of Christ, the disciple of Jesus, being involved in politics is antithetical, is against the will of God. Let's kneel for prayer.